Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The Pure Hoops podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Pure Hoops podcast most definitely does reflect the views of our management. Here's three-time NBA champ BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. The Pure Hoops podcast, we took a quick hiatus. We are back, Eric Newman, New York, quarantined, BJ Armstrong, L.A., Probably slightly less quarantined because you've got some more space out there. How are you today, my friend? Oh, I can't complain. And uh, just, you know, doing our part, being responsible, uh, really just trying to, you know, manage day by day with the rest of the world. And uh, But, no, we can't complain out here. So in 30 seconds, what's the daily B.J. Armstrong and family quarantine routine? managing our time and energy <laughs> that's that's the, that's the routine right so you got a you got a practice plan up hour by yeah, hour what the yeah you know with the with with school online school with the business calls and adjustments that you have to make so just really managing the needs of you know three kids wife my schedule family schedule you know just trying to you know, really manage ourselves and, and, and do what we have to do. So, um, but, you know, our, our family has been terrific. Thank, you know, goodness, everyone has been safe and we're just trying to figure it out every day. So um, we're going to do what we have to do and, and, and listen to the, uh, you know, all the health officials and people here that are trying to help everyone. And uh, I think the best thing that we can do is be responsible, hold ourselves accountable, and most importantly, be as contained as we possibly can so that we can know that, you know, we're only, you know, we, you know, we have to play our part in this, in this, in, in this whole pandemic here and situation. So it's, it's, it's been good. You know, we've been doing a lot of bonding as a family and figuring out uh, how to problem solve for sure. Awesome. Yes. Playing our part in the twilight zone, which we are all <laughs> participating in. Um, I'm thankful to be busy uh, knocking out different stuff on the Showtime side. And, you know, it's been a little bit of a uh, challenge pausing my filmmaking journey that I was lucky enough to start with Kevin Garnett. So last weekend, um, you know, I thought I was you know, if you asked me two months ago where I was going to be, I thought I was going to be at the Final Four in Atlanta because that's where they were doing the official Hall of Fame announcement. And, of course, right. the announcement still went on, um, but, you know, nobody went anywhere. And I got to be honest, I kind of forgot it was coming just because there, there's no normalcy right now. There's no regular schedule and just working on other stuff. So when we saw it being leaked on Friday that, you know, official announcement coming Saturday, and to no surprise, the late great Kobe Bryant, Tim Duncan, Kevin Garnett, uh, headlining a, a, a impressive 2020 class, which in, includes some others. Um, I was like, oh well, this is still going on despite the fact that nobody can go anywhere, and it'll be interesting to see how it's covered. And you know, ESPN had a special on it on Saturday, and. Uh, KG checked in, Tim Duncan checked in. They had a beautiful piece done on Kobe. Um, Tamika Catchings checked in. She was great. And, um, you know, it is, a, it is a time where we're all missing the game. But to be able to take a moment and look at this class of not just talent, but people that had an incredible impact on the sport – uh, truly remarkable, this group going in. What, what was your reaction to, you know, the news being official and, and this class of incredible basketball people? 
Well, I think you said it right there. What an amazing class, incredible uh, group of individuals. And we want to say congratulations here to all that was inducted into the Hall of Fame. But, um, you know, headlined by, you know, the late Kobe Bryant, you know, Tim Duncan, Kevin Garnett, Tamika Ketchings, and so many others. And uh, what a fabulous, fabulous group uh, to be enshrined, to be celebrated into the hall of fame. And uh, certainly they're all very deserving. Yeah. And, and just to uh, review, it's uh, Kobe Bryant, Tamika Catchings, Tim Duncan, Kevin Garnett, Kim Mulkey, uh, head coach at Baylor. Barbara Stevens had a thousand wins in 42 plus seasons as, as a college coach, the great Eddie Sutton and uh, Patrick Bellman, who was a uh, contributor. And uh, the last one really puts a smile on my face is uh, the one and only Rudy Tomjanovich, who has had an incredible ride as a, uh, a player and a coach to the NBA and, of course, known for his back-to-back championships, uh, coaching the Rockets 1994-1995. Uh, uh, with Akeem Olajuwon and obviously somebody you competed against uh, back then. But, uh, you know, it's been such a strange time. But the fact that we've got um, a group like this being recognized and the enshrinement will hopefully uh, be at the end of the summer. And hopefully that'll be uh, something that people can attend. And, uh, you know, to be honest, it's it's part of the formula for me to make the film that I want. So. Uh, fingers crossed on that. But, you know, BJ, one of the things that uh, really goes into whether it's Hall of Fame careers or things we love about the game has been uh, rivalries. And it's something that we're developing that's going to be a a theme for our shows for the next, uh, you know, couple of months. And uh, today we're going to tease it a little bit with with a special guest. So BJ and I have often talked about not only history that we have both watched from afar the era that he played in but we we love talking about rivalries both team individual and uh, something we're going to be doing here on the pure who's pod for the next uh, couple of months is is really taking a look at the uh, the last 40 years the framework of 1980 to 2020 and and looking at the rivalries that defined each of the eras and kind of laid down the, the lineage uh, for what was to happen next with teams and players. And uh, we've got a very uh, unique and experienced guest today. Uh, this man has spent five decades in the game. He's born in New York, went to high school in East Brunswick, played college basketball at Penn, and has served as an NBA assistant coach, a head coach, and a assistant GM and GM, and also has a uh, an NBA championship ring. I welcome Mr. Dave Wall to the Pure Hoops podcast. Dave, thanks for taking the time for uh, joining BJ and I as we go down this rivalry rabbit hole. Well, thanks for inviting me today. Our pleasure, our pleasure. So, uh, I want to I want to jump right in, and um, I feel like. Um, for all of the information that's between my my ears, I'm about to get educated in a big way today. So I'm I'm pretty excited as uh, I hear my running mate chuckling on the other end. But uh, you know, Dave, you you played in the '70s uh, and, and coached, as I said, front office roles through the '80s. Um, you know, to the current era, the, the game has you know the game has evolved through many lenses, but how do you think the evolution of the game uh, was affected through the, the rivalries that you saw over the last five decades? Well, I think one of the things that happened with the rivalries, and, and I think when David Stern came in in 84 too, you had Magic and Larry who came in, I think 79, 80, you know, you started to see teams that had really special players like those two guys, Um, And as we go forward, we can talk about others. But there began to be like a secondary plot for these rivalries. You know, as much as it was Celtics-Lakers a lot in the 80s, there was always that kind of subplot right next to it, which was Larry versus Magic. 
And I think part of that um, was David's insistence on coming in when the league was coming out of the 70s was when it was really struggling. And he wanted to focus more on individual stars. And so those players that um, really kind of were above everybody else in terms of their abilities and even some of their, their marketing abilities for the media and the league, I think you began to see this, the, these rivalries take on even more personal terms. And probably the big one that was right before them was uh, that came out more than anybody else was probably Wilt versus Russell. You know, it, it, it was the first really to, hey, focus on these two guys. Whichever one wins that matchup is going to win the series. And I think the, the Celtics and the Lakers were the dominant one throughout. And having been um, in those two uh, Lakers-Celtics series in 84 and 85, which were just tremendous series. And, you know, I know BJ's been in, in some with Chicago. And sometimes you step back and you go, okay, forget all the all the media stuff, they were just great basketball series. And I think that started the evolution of, you know, rivalries coming from the 80s on. Yeah, and, and with that, obviously, came the, uh, you know, the new television deal uh, with CBS, right. which happened the year before Stern. And then, of course, the, the Larry Magic National Championship, which was uh, an NBC televised game, which is – still one of the most uh, historically highest rated uh, basketball games we've ever, ever watched. And, you know, BJ's from Michigan. So, you know, BJ, do you remember the, that time in terms of vibing with um, a player more than a team? And of course that Michigan state, Indiana state matchup, which set the stage for Larry and magic and the pros. Well, I think growing up in, in, in Detroit, Michigan, we've we've always had great individual talents, but for as long as I can remember, it was always instilled in the, you know, where I learned how to play basketball in the Detroit area that the game was never meant to be played by just one person, right? It was always meant to be played as a team. So um, the concept of team was embedded into how you played, how you prepared for the game, but more importantly, you know, if you were going to play the game to the highest level and winning was priority number one, two, and three, you had to figure out how to integrate your individual talent to a team. So um, with Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, Magic, you know, was this phenomenal individual player, but the emphasis of what he was able to do with his talent and bring that to the forefront with the team, I think really was a was one of those pivotal moments, I think, for the basketball community because the game was always a game, right? Whether you're talking about, you know, Bill Russell, who played on those incredible teams there in Boston, and then you had this amazing individual, you know, mammoth of a talent, literally, in, in, in Will Chamberlain. So I think that was always the 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 thing that was working that people will love to discuss. But um, for us growing up in Detroit, that was always a thing. And that's why we followed magic. I remember as a, as a kid, I followed magic and in my, in my teenage years, and that was really brought to the forefront. Hey, hey, Dave, coming you know, out, Dave, coming out of the, um, the experience, which was the 1970s, you have such a unique perspective of where the league was going before magic and bird joined it. I mean, for our younger fans out there who may not realize it, realize it, is it overstating thing to say that Bird and Magic and then, of course, Jordan taking the, the torch that really saved the NBA in terms of where it was going? I, I think the only thing that came a little bit in the 70s, which gave like, uh, I guess you could say a little light at the end of the tunnel was when they had the NBA ABA merger in 76 because mm -hmm. that brought in Dr. J. And yep. I can tell you that he was probably the first personality as a player in the uh, 70s that brought that excitement into an arena with him. And I remember um, I had actually played against him when I was a senior in college. He was a sophomore at UMass. But I was playing for Houston at the time. And this was Julius's first time coming into Houston to play. And his first seven baskets were seven outrageous dunks. <laughs> and 
And, you know, when you're the opponent, like we're sitting on the Houston bench, you're not supposed to act impressed by what the opposing, opponent did. We were almost all off the bench with every dunk, which really <laughs> probably looked bad if they were filming it. And so, so he was like a little bit of a precursor. And one of the things BJ said I, really resonated with me because the thing about being indoctrinated as a team player when you were growing up and when I was growing up too, the thing that I think people could identify with, with Magic and with Larry was they played a team game. As good as they were individually, it was about the team. Like there were times Magic was in the locker room and he scored four points and he had 16 assists. He was the happiest guy in the locker room. And Larry loved to be a, you know, a facilitator too in his game. So I, I think those guys, you know, were the guys that really ushered in things. And, and I think a lot of people have also forgotten, BJ may remember this too, is there was another underlying theme in that Celtic-Laker rivalry. And it was black versus white. Mm-hmm. You know, Magic, yeah, the Lakers, we were the black team. You know, we were athletic as hell. We were fast. You know, we threw fancy passes, but we were kind of playground and we didn't have fundamentals. That was the stereotype they were putting on that team. Larry's team was the white team. They were not quite as athletic, but they were tough and industrious and a great work ethic, and they played very fundamental basketball. So this was this kind of underlying theme also that was driving this rivalry. The Celtics hadn't won in, I think, seven appearances in the finals against Boston. So you had all these little, like, sub-themes and subplots coming in along with just Celtics-Lakers. It's like a perfect wave to, I think, start a rivalry that existed and continued all through the 80s. Yeah. Go ahead, Yeah, no, Dave, I just thought it was, you know – you, you you've seen these errors and, and there are moments where you say, you know, and that, that really you saw the transitions or pivotal moments. I want to ask you this question here. Yes, we saw Larry and Michael and these guys were they were the star individual players that the NBA was marketing different and we were shining the light on them. At what point right. during that time do you think the coaches began to coach the star players differently, right? Because we all grew up that everyone on the team was the same. And then suddenly now you had a star. When do you think the NBA coaches began that process of saying, I have to coach this guy differently. I have to feature this player. I have to do this for the business and the business of sports that we were now ushering in under, let's just say, you know, David Stern in 1984. Right. Yeah, it's a good, I think that's a really good question, BJ, because, you know, I can, I can think back to um, the Celtic Laker rivalry. Uh, Pat Riley was the coach. Mm-hmm. And Pat knew, and if you look at that series, I actually looked the other day, in those two Laker series, Celtic series, there were nine eventual Hall of Fame players on those two teams. And wow. so you had a bunch of alpha dogs. And Pat, I know, I can't speak for Casey and those guys on the Celtic side, but, but Pat knew that Magic was different than Kareem, who was different than Worthy, who was younger coming in as a rookie. And he dealt with guys with a set of sort of universal rules and then the special rules that dealt with the personalities of the great players. So the universal rules we've all, you know, you, you're on time, uh, you play hard, you play together, you play for your teammates. But then there were times, and, and you, you may find this funny, Pat never gave Magic a day off, even when he was, you know, he was 6'9", 6'8", 230. We pushed it on mates. We pushed it on misses. And one time the trainer, Gary Vitti, came up to me. And he said to me, he said, Magic's really tired. It was like in the middle of the season. He said, you really need a day off or two. So I had to go into Pat's office and I went in and said, hey, Beats came up to me. He said, you know, Magic really needs a day off. And Pat looked at me and said, he's not getting any days off unless he gave the whole team off. And I asked him, I said, why? He said, well, then he'll expect a day off. And then he'll start to think that he needs a day off more and more. So Pat looked at guys and he wanted Magic just driven. If that was Kareem, they would have given Kareem a day off because he was 37 years old or 36 years old and he needed to conserve, conserve some energy. Pat looked at these guys completely different. And I know Doc did the same thing when he had KG 
and when he had Paul Pierce. And when I was with Don Nelson in Milwaukee, you know, he ended up with Lanier and a good young team. So I think like a lot of these great coaches, Popovich and Phil Jackson and some of the others, they looked at guys as individuals. Okay, here's the universal rules everybody goes by, but what buttons do I have to touch to help get the most production out of this player um, with the agenda of winning it all? So, Dave, you know, you, you talk about this Hall of Fame talent on both sides. And, um, you know, 1984 was really a, a collision course waiting to happen. Bird and Magic. And as you mentioned, Commissioner Stern, along with fans coast to coast. I mean, they wanted the Celtics-Lakers matchup, especially since Magic got a chip as a rookie. Larry in year two, Magic in year three. Right. And then uh, Magic and the Lakers lose to Philly in 83. and. Bird and the Celtics are swept by Milwaukee, and they've got a chip on their shoulder. And, of course, um, that drove them to name Casey Jones head coach, bring in Dennis Johnson, and, and you know, revamp the DNA of that team a bit. So, you know, I, I recently rewatched Celtics-Lakers, and uh, I've been a Celtics fan my entire life, so obviously that's one of my, my favorite uh, basketball docs to watch. But c- can you paint the picture – of um, before I get into the weeds on a few things from those final series, can you paint the picture of what that excitement and anticipation was from your perspective? And of course you being on the Lakers staff at that time, what that was like heading into the 84 finals. Okay. Well, first of all, I have to, I have to tell you an interesting story, a funny story. Um, My first year with the Lakers. Okay. And that was the year we ended up losing to Philadelphia, but, I go into training camp, and as, as BJ remembers, there were no uh, individual practice facilities for players then. They, they had to find either playground games or maybe a YMCA, or uh, they played at a college in the summers. So you really didn't have uh, a chance to really touch your players a lot in the summer. So I got hired by Pat, and I come to the training camp, and the first day of camp, we're having a typical shoot-around that every team does where you break down and I've got uh, eight players at our end, four and four and two different teams. They shoot shots from the top of the circle, then the 45 degree angle in the corner. And as each team makes 20 shots, they move to the next spot. And when you finally make your 20 from the corner, you win. So I'm the assistant coach that has to keep score at that end. And we've got Cooper's team and, and I've got Magic's team. So they get to the corner and Cooper's shot goes in just before Magic's shot to give them 20. So I said, all right, Coop's team wins. Irvin just goes off on me. He starts telling me his shot went in first. Coop's was late. And I'm telling you, he's, he's, he's like trying to convince me that um, his team won. And I stuck by my guns. I said, no, Coop's won. He doesn't talk to me for three days. <laughs> he doesn't say hello to me. He doesn't he walk by me like I was not even there. And I remember calling a girlfriend at the time on about the third day, and she said, hey, how are things going with the Lakers? I said, oh, it's really great. I've pissed off probably the best player in the league to the point where he (laughs) won't even talk to me. I I think I've really got a future here. (laughs) (laughs) See, see, BJ, the Lakers Lakers are the sore losers. Larry Larry just never would have lost the contest. Uh, (laughs) That's... the fourth day, Magic comes up to me and he apologizes. He grabs me before practice and he said, Coach, I apologize. You were right. Coop's team won. You know, I just hate losing any drills. And I especially hate losing a Coop because he's my good friend. And I told him, I said, look, I love the fact that you're so competitive. You hate to lose a drill. If you want to not talk to me for the rest of the season, that's okay as long as we just keep winning. And he laughed and we had a great relationship after that. But what it was, it was, it was a, a different time, too, because we're so used to the Internet and iPhones and, and you know, you 24-7, you can check on anything. None of that existed back then. So when you looked at a box score, you had to wait till the paper came out the next day. Right. And Boston and us were looking at, I know, each other's box scores. So I would scour the paper the next morning if Boston played. I'm looking at everybody on their team because we just felt, we were going to meet them in the finals. I think from guys I've talked to over there, they felt the same way. And the thing was that you had this tragic figure of, of Jerry West, 
who had one of the greatest players ever. And Jerry had lost, what, six straight times to Boston in the finals mm-hmm. to the point where he wouldn't even attend the games. So there are all these little things on the Lakers side that you kept finding out about. And then we go in in 84, we think we're ready. And it turns out as you review that, we basically made two mistakes that cost us games where otherwise we would have swept them. And then the next year we win. So essentially over two seasons, had we not made those mistakes, we win eight out of 10 games against a, a great, great Celtic team. But you had to live with those mistakes and the anguish over the summer. I mean, think of, think of Magic Johnson. He makes these mistakes in 84, okay? And he all of a sudden became human instead of superhuman. He wasn't used to these things happening to him at the end of games. He has to live with that tragic Johnson kind of label on him. Right. Not only the rest of that summer after the playoffs, but the entire season until he has a chance to go find redemption in 85. Had to do the same thing. It was, it was just amazing. You know, what I, I remember most, I was, I was very young at the time and had dreams of playing someday in the NBA. And one of the, as you were talking, I remember the physicality of the game at that time. That ushered oh. in a new level <laughs> of physicality, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Because... When I came in the NBA, I, I wasn't – nothing can prepare you for how hard you were going to get fouled. You expected to get fouled. And, I mean, when I look at those games now, I go, that just wasn't safe. <laughs> you know, I look at the, some of the games. Can you talk about the physicality of the playoffs and the, the no layup rules and all the things that were like kind of – you know, it was just a way of life in the NBA at that time. Yeah, and nobody, the interesting thing, BJ and Eric, nobody knew any different. I mean, it wasn't like we'd just come out of a soft period and all of a sudden the physicality started. This was how it had been. And I remember um, my rookie year, I was with the Philadelphia 76ers. So this is, this is 1971. And Hal Greer and Archie Clark take me aside to talk to me about hand checking. And they say, listen, Rook, when the game starts and you're dribbling up court, there's going to be a guy that's going to put his hand on you, your defender. And they're teaching me ways to knock it off. And they say you have to, they're telling me, and this is really hilarious later on, he goes, you have to aim for this little bone on his wrist. And they said, if you hit that little bone, he's going to take his hand off you. And you, you <laughs> go, so do you know why? And I go, you know, I'm a dumb rookie. No, he goes, because it hurts like hell. <laughs> and then they say, and when he gets over half court, you got to put your hand on him. And you know what he's going to try and do? <laughs> and Archie says he's going to try and knock it off. And you know what he's going to try and do to knock it off? He's going to try and hit this little bone. Do you know why? And I said, because it hurts like hell. And they go, hey, this rookie's not too dumb. He kind of gets it. But I'll they never... taught you, like, all the little things, the little tricks. And, and there were times you would just go to your power forward who was, you know, BJ is, you know, the stereotype back then. Right. The big, tough guy. And he would tell you, hey, run your guy off my screen. And oh. he would just pop the guy. And all of a sudden you were running free for a while. But the big men used to be able to use their knees to, like, get right between your butt and, like, move you out of the post. I mean, it was just a physical game at every single position because you could hand check from half court on in. And that's how you nullified speed. So everybody just took that for granted. You were going in for a layup. You knew you were going to get hit. So, so you Dave, know, and, and you dealt with it. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I'll never forget the first time I got hit on that part on my wrist. And I, I, thought, I was, <laughs> thought I was hallucinating from the pain. But, you know, you bring up, though, you know, we're talking about the physicality of the, the 84 finals, which, of course, led to three amazing Celtics-Lakers matchup in the finals that decade and you talk about those little mistakes in 84 and one of them of course famously is uh the gerald henderson steal in game two to tie the game match right. johnson loses track of the clock at the end of regulation following that play the celtics win in overtime um but then the, the series is still very much in the lakers hands they, they blow the celtics out in game three larry right. of course makes the comments to the newspapers about how uh his teammates played like a bunch of sissies. 
and basically drew the line and said, this needs to stop at whatever means necessary, which of course leads to the drama of game four uh, highlighted by uh, the Kevin McHale clothesline on Kurt Rambis, which uh, our recent guest, uh, the great Bob Delaney said, uh, you know, someone would get arrested for doing that today. <laughs> but, but can you, can you set up, you lived it. I view game four as one of the most underrated, most dramatic games in basketball history with what then happened after McHale laid out Rambis. Can you set up what game four was like before that? And then what happened between the Celtics and the Lakers after that famous moment? Yeah, I think it was kind of, uh, you know, the game was sort of physical before that, but it was sort of the normal physical play you expected in the playoffs. When Mikhail took down Kurt, I think it put a line in the sand. And basically the game changed from that point on. And, you know, it was interesting. I thought one of the interesting things was, as you guys know, if that was done now, Kevin would have had a flagrant miss. You know, they would have suspended him maybe for the rest of the playoffs. But the thing was, somebody held Kurt from getting up. Like if you watch the the Celtics-Lakers 30-30, you see, and when we were there, Kurt starts to get up and go after McHale, and he gets grabbed. I think one of our guys grabbed him. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's worthy. I think it's worthy. Yeah. And I many times I wish they had just let Kurt go because Kurt was crazy back then. I mean, Kurt would be happy to fight you. You could hit him 50 times. As long as he could hit you 50 times, he'd be a happy camper. <laughs> and, and Kevin, I thought, was more of a lover off the court, you know? And that would have been a massive, like, brawl if Kurt had gotten to Mikhail. But after that, what was interesting was Pat was trying to get us not to focus on becoming more physical because that wasn't really our game. I mean, we played at a certain level, but our game was pushing the pace, execution, you know, using our, our skill level on the floor. And so he was caught between trying to get our guys to stand up to how Boston was now going to try and really push and play physical, but not playing beyond our normal way of playing. And that's where Pat got caught a little bit too. And he even admitted it. He, it was like trying to, to like hold guys back so we do what we do well. But at the same time, the other team is seeing that as, oh, you guys don't want to play tough. So we can even step in further and do more damage. Yeah. And, and you know, there's, there's other incidents that happen in that game. You've got Bird backing Cooper into the right. Michael Cooper, into the first row of photographers, which I always thought was hilarious. Um, right. well, thankfully, he didn't get hurt. And and then there's that Kareem elbow against Bird. And, and right. they're face-to-face. And if there was only a microphone closer to the court back then, you can only imagine <laughs> what was being said. But, you know, the Celtics, obviously, was successful in turning that game into um, – what I like to call a, a third Avenue street fight. And whether it was chief DJ bird, uh, the Michael Cooper quote of bird, looking at Cooper and telling him he was going to wear his ass out. Um, right. You know, the, the, that whole game swayed. And then of course it, 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 it goes to overtime and things tense up and you've got Larry making great plays, but you've got more mental breakdowns on the LA side. Do you, do you remember in the huddle, did it feel like it was just getting away from you guys at a certain point? Yeah, it really, it really did. And especially, you know, you know, magic had the turnover when he was trying to feed worthy, I think. And then he misses, I think two foul shots. And you could just see that we were starting to be scrambled. You know, usually we were a team that was very much together in in terms of like feeling where everybody was going to be, what everybody was doing. And you could just sense it starting to slide away from us. And I I think that was, again, uh, you know, the incident was the Rambus, you know, getting clotheslined by Mikhail. And, you know, it was just unfortunate. I think we lost our poise a little bit. I think we, we, we lost our confidence a little bit. And then we get to the game where, you know, it was 97 degrees in there and about 100 degrees humidity. And, you know, I just I thought that sapped us quite a bit, too. So, 
you know, it was just unfortunate that again, a couple mental mistakes and, and we just didn't, we, we tried to respond, I think, in the wrong way to uh, the physicality after that. Yeah. And, and, you know, Dave, it's interesting. You look at the, the course of the decade, right? And it's almost like the Celtics said to the Lakers, we're going to pull you in to this Eastern Conference brutality of basketball that's been going on since the beginning of right. the decade. Because when you look at it, it starts with Celtic Sixers in 80, 81, 82. They're playing in the conference right. finals every year, those great series. And then, you know, staying in the East, you know, the Celtics take over the Eastern Conference, but pretty soon the Pistons are knocking at the door. And we all know what happened in those series between, you know, Lambeer and Bird and Parrish and the bad, uh, that was the making of the bad boys. And then the torch is passed and it goes from Celtics to Pistons. And then of course, to the Chicago Bulls and BJ participating in, in that rivalry with Detroit. Um, what made the East that much more physical and intense when it came to these kinds of rivalries? Obviously, not many teams in the West pushed the Lakers. But what was it about these Eastern Conference matchups, players, teams that created all this bad blood and eventually some classic rivalries? You know, I wish I wish I could pinpoint something for an answer on that because I was in the Eastern Conference with Don Nelson with Milwaukee for three years, and there was just a there was just a sense when you were in the East, and I and I think BJ probably thought of it this way. You know, when they were in the East, obviously with the Bulls, the East was the physical conference; the West wasn't. You know that this was you had to grind it out in the East. Nobody was going to give you anything. You know. Uh, if you got knocked down, you had to get up, knock the other guy down. There was just this, whether it was true or not, it just was the perception that this is how we play in the East. And it got up a notch a little further um, once you got to the playoffs. And I think that was what played in because all the teams in the East, I think, felt that way. Even if you weren't very good, you were trying to play, you know, a physical brand of basketball. And I just think that was the perception. And in 85, I think the Lakers finally figured out when we beat Boston, you know, that how to combine a physical sense of play with all the other things we did really well. And that enabled us to really dominate them in that series. You know, Dave, when I came in in the, the late 80s, you know, one of the things that, you know, to, to comment about that, um, very aspect was I think the scouting got so sophisticated right around that time, right around when it was accessible to get VHS tapes. And right. I remember Tex winners would have us watching real to real. And I would think I, and I remember thinking I was, I was like, what is this? Right. You're watching like they would have real to real back then. And suddenly when VHS tapes were accessible, the sophistication and the scouting got more sophisticated and then the preparation and the, these coaches are so detailed and were so good that you had to find a way to get open shots. And the only way you could get open shots is to speed the game up to get open before you guys could set up your defense. <laughs> so I think the, the, the game got, the, the scouting got so, you know, there were advanced scouts and all of those things before, but now they were able to share the information that much that's much sooner. And as we began to watch more tape, it really, our defense was like a lot of times we're so much further ahead. They were much further ahead than the offenses were because, you know, we could really game plan for a team, you know, for instance, the Denver Nuggets, they played a different style and, you know, the teams right. on the West coast were, and then if we could take that away or take some aspect of that away, and and as you know, if, you know, as you recall in those times, you know, your best defense was your offense. So we were make we would be very patient against you know those Laker teams because we knew they were going to get out and run, which affected right. them, I think, to some degree on the offensive end. It's interesting. I think it's a great observation, BJ, because um, to to take you back a little bit, um, when I was with Milwaukee, and Pat was with LA, he was an assistant coach at the time. When we got together and we started talking, we were the first two assistant coaches that were starting to do edits. 
because we had the, v- <laughs> the VCRs now. Nice. And with yep. coaches before, you'd watch one end of the game to the other. We would go down and pull out like 10 or 15 edits of what a right. team was running or do a player edit. Hey, here's 10 or 15 edits of his best moves. And what I would do at that time, um, once I got with the Lakers, is we would put playoff edits together and I would do a voiceover for each of our players. And so they would get an individual tape where they didn't have to sit there for two hours and watch an entire game, but they would get the, the meat of what we were trying to do against their, uh, the opponent's sets. And I think that, as you said, it got better and better and the video department started to grow and coaches began to see that as a real advantage uh, for them. Love it. So VHS tying into the build of rivalries. Love it. Love it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, real quick, Dave, you're, you're with the expansion heat in the late 80s, early 90s, and all of a sudden B.J. Armstrong is thrown into the fire of the Bulls and the Pistons. What do you remember most about that rivalry that B.J. was participating in in that time when the, Bull, when the Bulls were trying to climb the mountain against Detroit? Well, I'll give you a different take on it from my take. If you look at a lot of the great teams from the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, and you tried to ask the question, could they contend for a title now? Celtics, the Lakers, BJ's Bulls, all of I'd say yes, with one exception, the Pistons, because most of their guys would have been suspended (laughs) and just wouldn't have been available to play. Because that's how they decided to play the Bulls. They just tried to beat them up. They couldn't match the talent level. But they wanted that physical part of the game to be so extreme, and it was allowed back in that day. You know, they had the Jordan rules that they figured if they could take, you know, uh, one guy coming to the rim and make him fear almost physical injury, that they they could change a game. And that's what I remember most out of that series was just the sheer physicality that was going on. That's funny. Yeah. Um, the, the way it started to, I'm talking about the, the physicality and the rivalries, you know, the way they began to shift. And once the Bulls got past Detroit and, you know, Michael would have some very um, clear cut things to say about how he felt about the Detroit Pistons, especially, uh, when they walked off before the buzzer in the 91 right. conference finals. But, you know, then you see these new rivalries formed with Bulls-Knicks and Knicks-Pacers, and then eventually uh, Riley goes to Miami, and you've got the Knicks-Heat, bad blood. Um, but, you know, then the lockout of 99 happens, and you have a new collective bargaining agreement. And it's not a drastic shift, but – we don't see the same types of rivalries for as long anymore in the 2000s. And I, I wanted to ask you your thoughts because you've worn so many hats uh, and you did spend a lot of time in the front office. And it, it's, it's incredible to me that you were a, a Lakers assistant coach during the Celtics Lakers of the eighties. And then of course we're in the Celtics front office when the, the rivalry was renewed for uh, a few years, right. uh, you know, 2008 through 10, but do you think the player movement and free agency uh, has a lot to do with the fact that rivalries just aren't the same anymore? Or do you think there's some other factors uh, weaved in there, mainly the fact that a lot of these guys are very good friends, regardless of whether they're teammates or opponents? I think you hit the two biggest reasons. Um, you know, when when I was playing in the 70s and and even into the 80s, there really wasn't AAU basketball. You didn't know guys from the age of 10 on and maybe even play with them on an AAU team. And so, and especially like in the 70s, we, we had less teams. So guys, guys got to know the other players as rivals and, and you hated, you hated them. I mean, that was how you were kind of brought up into the league. You know, you hate these guys. You're going to play them eight times a year. You hated them. And now guys are pretty much friends. They go on trips together. Like I never took a vacation with a guy from an opposing team when I was in the seventies. You see guys from three or four different teams, you know, like Chris Paul and LeBron and all those guys will go on a, 
you know, a trip together and, and you see guys who've known each other since they were young men. And so I, it, it's not that they don't compete against each other, but the style of play has also given them a reason where they don't have to knock a guy down when he's coming in for a layup. They know that the penalty for that might be their team loses their services for a game or two. So, and he's going to lose some money. So I think some of those things changed. I mean, BJ, I don't know if you remember, because I can't remember when they really changed the rule, but, mm-hmm. you know, it used to be if one of your players got in a fight with a player on the opposing team, both benches emptied. Right. Because the rule was you're never going to leave your guy out there alone. And as a coach, coming up as an assistant coach, every coach I'd been with as an assistant always told his guys, I'll pay all your fines, but we never leave our guy out there alone. And I was the same way as a head coach. And, of course, the rule changed where now they try and don't let anybody go out. And so the whole, the whole kind of vibe has changed. And I think you hit the two reasons. Players move around now. I mean, someone like LeBron would normally be a guy that didn't move around when it was years ago. But he's with a number of teams, all the, almost all the elite players, with few exceptions like Duncan and maybe a few others, they've been with a couple of teams and they've made some championship runs with other teams. So I, I think there is the free agency. And I think the fact that there's, if not a friendship, a knowledge of guys that, Hey, he's a pretty good guy. He's not a bad guy. I don't hate him. I'm just going to play hard again. You know, you know, David, playing in, in that era, you know, I, I'll say this, you know, as the game changes, right. As you know, every, everything changes. Back in those times, the 80s, 90s, and even now, when I look at a game, I'll look at a team and go, that team plays at a championship pace. Right. You don't see that as much now is because the emphasis now with the game is on the individual putting up the numbers. The individual. So I can never recall watching an NBA game where I have seen this much individual one-on-one play during the regular season than at any time since my 30 years of, you know, being a part of the NBA. Like there were times, I mean, look, I I played with arguably one of the greatest individual players. I don't recall us just giving him the ball for 48 minutes, just playing one-on-one basketball. Like I see the players do today there. he, He did what he did in the framework of the team catch and shoot single double action we run them to the post we do things in the framework where we're doing to get him you know what we needed to do to win the game but i don't recall just giving him letting him just dribble and iso like you're doing today and i think that is you know th- that's a product of how we play the game today but more importantly that's how we coach the game because these players today aren't as prepared when they come to the NBA as the previous generations were, right? They're coming out of school. Most of them are, you know, six months at, at, on a college campus. Some of them are right. like, were before the rules coming out of high school. So, you know, Dave, you didn't have to worry about developing the young players like today. Like when we came to the league, it was already expected. You were expected to be able to perform. And if not, we'll get the other guy because the other guy <laughs> is probably <laughs> – you know, an all-star. He was deadlift shrimp sitting on the bench waiting to get in the game anyway. So I right. think that's the the overall, you know, the, the focus of the game has shifted and changed over that period as well. Well, I think, you know, there's a couple things that have gone on in the time that since I came in. And part of it has just been the way offense and defense has changed. And if you think about, there was a stretch of offense where, you know, everybody had a good center, a post guy. And I think Chicago was kind of different because of the triangle and and how you guys did certain things. And I think Golden State, with all their ball movement, even though they had terrific players, they were a little bit of an outlier too. But most of it was, and they had those crazy defensive rules, if you remember, which were just, you know, you could never come from the weak side – cross the midpoint line if you did you had to go double you couldn't like fake and come back you didn't have the 2.9 going on uh if you set up your offensive guys above the top of the circle the defensive guy actually had to be above the foul line right and so offenses became either isolate a guy or go into the post 
and force a double or just play one-on-one in the post. And that went on. Almost every team adopted that to some degree, and it became very boring. Hmm. And then they changed the rules, and we got far more movement and everything. And now, as you know, it's kind of gotten to the point where the analytics have entered into it with the value of the three. And so everybody's trying to put enough shooters on the floor that the floor is so spaced out that the guys who can go one-on-one and create their own shot are given much more space to do that. Or you're going to try and go double him and give up a three. And so some of it is just the evolution of offense. I mean, I know fans, they they hate how Houston plays with James Harden last year. You know, because James would come down, they'd space it with four other guys, and eventually he would just take a shot, you know, after holding on to the ball for 15, <laughs> 17 seconds. Tough you know. watch. Yeah. and But they were winning, and they thought that was the best way to play. And when Mike D'Antoni tried to do his seven seconds or less, there was a lot of criticism on that, too. Oh, that's a different style. You can never win with that. So I think these things have, have started to be kind of the evolution of where we are now, which is, you know, small ball. Uh, the, the four position has changed into a stretch four position. Everybody's looking for three and D players. The post is disappearing. And what's going to be interesting is where that's ultimately going to lead, I think, guys, because, you know, one game, I think it was last season, the Knicks and, and Houston took 104 threes in the game. Houston took 70, and I think the Knicks took 34. Do we get to a point where we're taking so many threes in a game that the fans just don't find it interesting anymore? And do we have to go back to, you know, non-isolation you know, other kinds of things. And I always think it's kind of interesting as you try and look at this, like what are we evolving into? Because the isolations are very easy now for guys because they can get a switch and then they just go one-on-one with a guy. And, but it, it, is it going to be something that turns the fans off after a while? So Dave, coming full circle, the Hall of Fame announcement was this past week in the class of 2020 to no one's surprise, the, the late, great Kobe Bryant, Tim Duncan, Kevin right. Garnett, and, you know, you were a part of that 2008 uh, Celtics organization that saw them, you know, hang Banner 17 and make that right. unbelievable turnaround from uh, the year before and, and, and many years of frustration, of course, when they rebuilt the team with KG and Ray Allen coming over and uh, a lot of veterans who were hungry to win. So the fact that you were on the Lakers side of things in the 80s and obviously there was a lot more of a, a buildup of animosity there, but you had Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, Ray Allen chasing something that had always, always dreamed about along with vets like Eddie house and, and PJ Brown on that team uh, who had never gotten a chance to, to play for a ring. And then of course right. you have Kobe Bryant on the other side, whose dream in life as a Laker was to, play the Celtics and beat the Celtics in the final. Can, <laughs> yeah. can you share, you know, we all know what happened. I actually watched the end of game six over the weekend when they showed it and, and went back to that moment of just pure basketball joy uh, from a fan side. But you being in the middle of that, being at a much different point in your life and your career, what was it like seeing all of that great talent participate in that Celtics-Lakers rivalry and really write another chapter in that? I want to set up that with one story for you first, because it it was one of the most courageous things I've seen a GM do. The year before, um, with Doc, we had lost 18 games in a row at one point near the end of the season, and then lost eight and nine to end the season. Everybody in Boston wanted his head as the losing streak started. I mean, this was Boston. You don't lose like this in Boston. If you do, you're not around to finish it. Mm -hmm. Uh, the media wanted his head, the talk shows wanted his head. And I believe half the ownership, they had a big ownership group wanted his head. Although now they say they, they backed him a hundred (laughs) percent. And usually, usually what happens in this instance, and BJ, I think is just aware of this too, for his years in the league is when the losing happens, the GM and the coach, the GM just starts to put more and more distance between himself and the coach. And he (laughs) puts out statements like, uh, we'll evaluate everybody at the end of the year. And that's usually the line the coach is the dead man walking. So this is starting to reach a fever pitch. And Danny stands up basically and says, hey, you can stop all this foolishness. Doc's my coach. 
I think he's going to be a great coach. I just have to get a better talent. And it literally stops. Hmm. And I think had it been any other GM, Dot would not have been the coach for the next year. So now we get, we finally are able to get Kevin Garnett in the trade. And there, there's one, there's one great story that I don't know if people have ever heard is Kevin loved to practice. He, he hated, he didn't want to sit out a minute of practice. He thought he was a warrior and warriors lead. And doc was, was telling me that there was, as we're going into that season before the playoffs, Kevin's playing a lot of minutes because back then everybody practiced every day. There was no real rest and recovery stuff that they had come upon yet. And so doc decided in this one practice, Kevin's got to go sit out for a while and get a, get a blow. So we waved somebody to come in for Kevin and Kevin basically says, get out of here. You're not coming in for me. And he sends the guy back to the sidelines. Doc turns to the guy and says, get in for Kevin. Guy tries to get in. Kevin, Kevin won't let him in. So finally, Doc, Doc stops practice, and he says, Kevin, you need to come out of practice. So Kevin begrudgingly comes to the sideline. And BJ knows most times when you get a break, guy go gets a drink of water, gets a towel, wipes down. He kind of watches what's going on. Not Kevin. What Kevin does is he's now playing in the scrimmage on the sideline. <laughs> when a shot goes up, he jumps up for a rebound. He runs the court to the other end. He's talking on defense. He's down the defensive stance. He's running the offensive play. Like, so he's not resting at all. So Doc finally has to, he stops practice and he calls practice off. And he says, everybody go home. And the players were upset because they liked, they were competitive. They liked to practice. And Doc put it all on Kevin. He said, Kevin won't take any time off. So I've got to stop practice to get him some rest. And the beauty of that, when we were talking about coaches dealing with, with individuals, and I'm sure BJ saw this with Phil sometimes, is the players got all over Kevin, that he had to rest, that he had to come out of practice. So the, the, the upside to that was Kevin agreed to come out of practice, every practice for like five minutes. But it was because of the peer pressure of his teammates. But now you had this intensity because Kobe was coming in, we had Kevin, we had Paul, we had Ray, and it was just like every game you could see our team, I know, was, was like laser focused. You know, this was a chance to win a ring, and Paul, uh, Ray, and KG had met with Doc, and we got them all, and they had all agree, agreed to hold each other accountable to get that ring. They were going to police each other and police the team, and they did it all year. So it was this phenomenal setup. And I know Kobe wanted to prove he didn't need Shaq to win a title. So there were, again, these little subplots going on. And it was just a phenomenal series. And, you know, the, the game we win, Doc said at the beginning of the game, he told the team, we're going to win and we're going to win big tonight. Mm. And it came true. That was one of the great knockout punches in championship history, that game six. And it obviously set up. Um, not just an incredible rematch, but I, I firmly believe it really set up the next decade of uh, a, a resurgence of the league in terms of excitement, talent, um, the rivalries that existed between LeBron and the Celtics, and obviously uh, the 2010 finals was, was great, but I, I really think it set up a lot that happened in the next decade. Um, in, in that NBA final, the Celtics and the Lakers um, renewing their rivalry. So, Dave, this was this was awesome. Um, this is something we're going to have to continue. We really appreciate the time. Uh, BJ, in closing with our friend here, a- anything for him? This is awesome. This is uh, very insightful. And, Dave, I really appreciate you coming on. And stay, stay safe, my friend. Yeah, you too, guys. This was great. Thanks for having me on. It was a lot of fun. So, BJ, the one and only Dave Wall, that was a, a, a heck of a convo, not just going down, you know, memory lane, but shared experiences. Um, and, and obviously you guys overlapped in the league for quite amount of time. So I'm looking forward to uh, where we take this rivalry stuff, my friend. Yeah, this is, this is great. And, uh, you know, what a, just a wealth of knowledge. And, and uh, he's had a fabulous, fabulous career in the NBA as a player, executive coach. So uh, it was great to have him on and uh, share some of those uh, stories and, and share his knowledge with, uh, with us and the audience. 
Yeah, and I learned the uh, I learned the VHS introduction for scouting, which is always good. And uh, I got to utilize uh, a lot of this information that's been stuck between my ears for the last <laughs> few years. So it's good stuff, man. So I want you and the fam to have a great weekend, and uh, we will pick it up next week. Special thanks, as always, to producer Mike Lieber, the one and only Bruce Bernstein, editor Benjamin Wolfen, and the entire Pure Hoops media team. The Mike Wise Show, dropping Mondays. Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams, Tuesdays, Catch and Shoot 2.0, Wednesdays, Buckets, Boards, and Blocks, Thursdays, and the Pure Hoops Podcast with BJ Armstrong and myself taking you for a ride down the rivalry road. Next week, we will begin our series. This was a precursor. We will be talking different rivalries each week as we celebrate Rivalries from playoff past in lieu of the 2020 hiatus of the NBA season and playoff rivalries, which will be on hold for the foreseeable future. Stay safe, watch old games, be healthy, and of course, stay pure. The Pure Hoops podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.